You're listening to Money Talks. There we go. We're ready to go because got a big show planned for you today. Uh, of course, this is every week we feel the same way, but a ton of things happening, of course, that are gripping uh, the financial world, and we'll get to them. But first off, I think this is one that won't put me on anybody's Christmas card list. I'll be cra- scratched off yet again, this time in felt marker, especially with the members of the political commentariat who are falling all over themselves, expressing surprise, usually great dismay at the persistent popularity of Donald Trump. I think you know the drill. It's been happening for the last year. To me, that simply reflects the degree to which so many of the mainstream media are part of this political status quo. It's also a major factor behind the decline in the influence and popularity of the mainstream media. I mean, many politicals, though, who first dismissed Trump as a flash in the pan are now coming to the realization that he is representing a good chunk of the electorate. That electorate is angry. It's disenchanted. They're actually grabbing themselves. No, my goodness, that guy could actually win the presidential nomination of the Republican Party. They talk about all of the outrageous statements he's made, the flamboyance, that kind of thing. But what's getting overlooked, especially when I read, literally, I read probably a dozen uh, columns this week, and that is the anger of the electorate is justified. What is it, a third, maybe more of the electorate, infuriated by the dysfunction of the U.S. government, high level of elitism that's founded on cronyism. Their insider connections that has made Washington, D.C. the jurisdiction with the highest median income in the country. It's so clear the evidence is mounting that they run Washington for their own benefit. The median net worth of lawmakers in the U.S. is 18 times greater than the wealth of the average American household. The average city and, uh, citizen's rather median wealth dropped 43% between 2007-2013. You know what? The average Congress member saw theirs jump 28%. Now, I could go on because there's a litany of facts that illuminate the profound gulf between Washington under both parties and the American public. There's a litany of information that really shows that politics is a terrific way of becoming a multimillionaire. Don't go any further than Bill and Hillary Clinton. Don't go any further than Al Gore. But there's so many examples from both sides of the aisle. While millions of Americans have been forced to cut back on expenses, it doesn't matter in Washington, doesn't matter how big the deficit is, how big the debt is, big government in Washington, D.C. has not cut back. There's not been any reduction in political staff, no political appointments curtailed, certainly no salaries dropped. There weren't any limousines canceled or any other perk for elected officials. I mean, my goodness, Hillary Clinton says she hasn't driven a car in over 20 years. That's a generation. Why? Because she's in limousines. I mean, what's going on in Washington, it's the stuff of the French Revolution under Louis XIV and Marie Antoinette. The Obama personal travel budget, not state business, personal travel budget is over $70 million. Why wouldn't they be angry? But the roots go far deeper. Think about this. The top two economic policies of the U.S. government under Obama have been record low interest rates and quantitative easing. I don't think anybody would argue with that. Those are the two dominant economic policies. But who did it help? Well, it certainly didn't help the poor. It didn't help the unemployed. It didn't help the displaced middle class. They don't have access to capital. I'm always blown away by people who don't get. The homeless aren't going into banks and borrowing. Those policies don't help them. The numbers are clear, by the way. Those policies help the top 7% of income earners. Why? Because they own stock. They have access to capital. Well-connected financial firms. That's who it helped. 
And if you think I'm overstating it, I'm going to read you the quote by Andrew Hazar, because he was the man in charge of quantitative easing at the Federal Reserve when they instituted it in 2009-2010. In quotes, the central bank continues to spin quantitative easing as a tool for helping Main Street. But I've come to recognize the program for what it really is. It's the greatest backdoor Wall Street bailout of all time. End of quote. I mean, history is full of examples of tough economic times creating political change. But it's already been happening throughout Europe. Greece, Spain, Italy all have seen the rise of brand new political parties in response to their economic problems. Angela Merkel is under siege right now due to the handling of the refugee crisis. In the UK, they're holding a referendum on the uni- uh, staying in the European Union. I mean, it's everywhere. Yet clearly, it seems to me that the majority of the political commentary is surprised that Donald Trump and to some extent Bernie Sanders have been able to tap into the deep-seated anger about the status quo in Washington. I love, though, that in Mr. Trump's case, I've got to bring up a couple of other things because it's more than that. It's this intersection of that public frustration, but with our fascination with the celebrity culture. It's also a reflection on our focus on form over substance. I mean, come on, most of us, many of us anyways, don't care about policy. Instead, we're in love with gestures, saying the right thing. And for the angry voter, Mr. Trump says the right things. Yeah, he drives the political establishment crazy. But for the angry voter, he's saying the right things because he points out the corruption, the cronyism, the influence of big money. I love this. A couple of weeks ago, Donald Trump said he could shoot someone in Times Square and it wouldn't cost him a vote. Well, I think he's right because it's not about him. He's simply the focal point for the anger that has the approval rating of Congress hovering at all-time lows and anger at political elites that's justified on so many levels. I've said for years the delusional economic and financial policies will have consequences. And one of the consequences is political. And you're seeing it throughout the Western world. What I'd like to remind you of is that we're just getting started. The level of change we've been experiencing is just getting started. The deteriorating confidence in government is going to be the major driving force in investment markets. It doesn't matter if we're talking currencies or stocks. It's going to be in the bond market. I want you to note that. It's going to be the driving force. It's not just political. It has phenomenal economic and financial and personal investment implications. Mr. Trump's popularity is simply a confirmation of that trend. I'm going to take a break. I'm coming back because I'm looking forward to this. Top three stories that smart people are talking about with Michael Levy. I've got a big fat idea coming up. You want to listen to that one. I'm also very keen on this. I've got Paul Beatty, BT Global. Really, I love him. He's going to come on, talk about what the story is in the investment markets. I've got Goofy Awards, you name it. You're at the right place on the Money Talks Network. You're listening to Money Talks. Let's talk about the top three stories that smart people are talking about right now. Michael Levy joins me. Mike, what's your number three story? Mike, this week uh, I found a couple of stories, the third and the second, <clears throat> pardon me, that have d- double headlines and uh, very interesting. So the uh, top or the third story, headline number one, Canadian dollar zips from zero to hero. And the second headline, completely different uh, 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 publication, Canadian dollar just about done falling, ex-carney protege predicts. And Mike, we were looking at 59 cents being forecast 
just over a month ago, and we've seen a pretty good turn in the Canadian dollar. Well, you know, my, I'm going to be blunt here, though. My first thing is when someone tells me this is what's about to happen, I want to know, did they get the major move down? Like, what's changed in their methodology? This isn't, shouldn't be just, hey, I'm picking an opinion out of a hat. And that's one of my challenges is that, you know, when you talk about politics, somebody talks about politics, there's no methodology involved. They're just you know, uttering their own personal piece of, let's leave it at that, their piece of something. But when it comes to economics and financial moves, then you should have a, you know, a disciplined sort of modeling approach to why you think things are going to do what they do. So, yeah, I mean, whatever, Douglas Porter says that, I'm with him. You know, uh, somebody else says that. My first thing, though, is did you call the down move? Because if you didn't, why do you think you're right now? Well, and this is interesting because it was Douglas Porter that says, less awful oil prices, Bank of Canada on hold for now, and presto changeo, the currency's on fire. And then we had uh, David Wolf, he's a former advisor to the governor of the Bank of Canada, relax, Canadian shopper, shoppers, the loonies nail-biting slide is almost over. Well, those are the two that said it's going up. Let's look at the guy with the track record, the guy who said it was going to 59 cents. That was David Doyle. He made that call on Bloomberg some months ago, and they asked him again last week, and David Doyle says that the loonie's going to fall to a record low of 59 cents. He reiterated that same forecast last week. So the guy with the track record says it's going back down. Well, and again, so much depends on what goes on in the States. I mean, I can draw a very clear scenario why the Canadian dollar will go down just relative to the U.S. dollar. It may gain against the euro during that same time period, gain against the yen in the same time period, but against the U.S. dollar is what we're talking. And I can certainly see scenarios, whether it's uh, huge problems continue to manifest in Europe, forcing or getting money to come out of Europe into the U.S. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, but I, liked, I, liked, I like the guys who've got the model that got it right first. What's your number two? Well, again, two headlines, Mike, and they're so tied. Headline number one, Saudi oil minister Naimi, oil production cuts won't happen. Headline number two, oil falls as Iranian minister calls freeze proposal ridiculous. And now, uh, Mike, just to get into this quickly, uh, the Saudi oil minister says there's a difference between a freeze and a production cut. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and he says a freeze is one thing, but on a production cut, he says, they're not going there, and I love the quote. If I had a quote of the week like you do at the bottom of the hour, mine would be, the producers of these high-cost barrels must find a way to lower their costs, borrow cash, or liquidate. Uh, you know, the other one that's kind of interesting, I just saw the number yesterday. You know, there's a lot of talk about Saudi Arabia and Russia reaching an agreement to freeze production at a certain level. Well, did you know that Russia, I just saw it, Russia had record output in January. This is amongst all of that talk. And, uh, Mike, same thing with the Saudis. They had record output. Sure, they want to freeze at that level. They'd be glad to freeze at that level. But the Iranian oil minister said that any talk of freeze was absolutely ridiculous. They put out 500,000 barrels. Uh, Currently, that's what they're producing. They're capable of 5 million barrels, and they aren't going to freeze anything, so everybody else can, you'll pardon the expression, go pound sand. They're not moving to a freeze of any kind. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be. I mean, that's that's obviously what's buffeting these markets back and forth. I mean, whether it's speculators closing out a short position, jumping into the long position, but that's behind the volatility that we're seeing, and I think that leads to your number one story. 
Oh, Mike, this story, uh, we talked about it last week. You've been talking about it for quite some time, and all it's doing is coming to fruition. Federal budget coming March 22nd that, uh, with a deficit that could surpass $25 billion. And when you look at the numbers behind the budget, $25 billion might be short-stating how much it could really be. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's going to be interesting because... Uh, you know, they've built in a contingency of $6 billion for this fiscal year. You know, and that brings them into eighteen. Then we have to see on March 22nd, as you said, Mike, about what part of their spending program is, is going to be pushed forward. So, uh, yeah, it's a very dis- different environment. Uh, just there's so much. We could do like nine hours on this one. But, oh, uh, Mike, I just want to give you just about two or three numbers, and it all makes sense. I mean, it would take somebody who was really financially illiterate not to understand this. Morneau said that he forecasted a deficit of $18.4 billion when he did his fiscal update. Well, Mike, you add to that the $5 billion in new infrastructure spending and the Liberal platform that promised $10.5 billion in net new spending. That's on top of the deficit, which is going to be because of a shortfall in revenue, and you come out to $30 billion. It's simple grade three math. Yeah, well, <laughs> absolutely. I think it's going to be straightforward. We'll get all the details. I mean, I'll tell you this very quickly, Mike. If the infrastructure spending is over only $5 billion this year, or let's say $10 billion, or let's say $20 billion, you know, when they talk about stimulating the economy, $20 billion, that's four times more, and it hasn't started yet. I mean, what we're talking about is 1% of the overall Canadian economy. You know, I mean, it's the Canadian economy is two trillion. We've really overstepped this. Anyways, I'm going on, Mike, and I know I've got to get to a break. Those are great topics. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. I'll take a break. I'll come back. I got a big fat idea for you. I'm looking forward to this one. We're going to talk to Kyle Green in just a minute on the Money Talks Network. Coming up, I've got my big quote of the week. I I really like this one, by the way. I'll do that in just a couple of minutes after the top of the hour. But right now, it's time for the big fat idea. I've got Kyle Green with me, founder of the Green Mortgage Team. Uh, Kyle, first of all, appreciate you taking the time. This is a hot market as we uh, keep chronicling. Whether you're, if you're talking Vancouver, you're talking Victoria, some of the spinoff markets, not so much in Calgary. I want to know what's your specific idea. Well, my big idea is buying in, in areas where you can take advantage of the low dollar right now. So um, I'm looking at areas like Whistler, Kelowna, recreational areas that foreign buyers haven't been buying in for the last decade that I think are great buys right now. Um, so... Obviously, that recreational areas aren't must-have. So, I mean, I think I'm seeing this anecdotally, by the way, at Whistler. But, but to kind of get in there ahead of the, once they recognize, my God, all of Canada is at a 40% discount. That's the big key for sure. So, you know, during the subprime crisis, for the past, the past decade, uh, recreational areas haven't been, uh, haven't been good areas to buy. But as you said, they're not must-haves. But when they're 30% off and with the economic recovery down in the U.S., um, you're finding that a lot of foreign buyers are buying up Whistler. Um, they're coming up to uh, uh, buying a little bit on the island even. Um, Kelowna is a great target. And I think Squamish also has some, some spinoff from, uh, from Whistler. And also, I have a lot of buyers that are getting really frustrated with getting outbid over and over and over again yeah. in Vancouver, right? So I've certainly had that personally. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, are, what are a couple of things to be aware of, like a must-not? I mean, what am I actually buying here? Make sure that you're, if you're buying in a, uh, a recreational area, make sure you're not buying a, um, a quarter share or a hotel or a timeshare or anything weird like that. You want to be making sure that you're buying 
regular freehold title real estate. If it's anything that's wonky or weird, you're going to have issues financing it, and you're going to have issues reselling it later on down the road. Um, so very straightforward. And then again, what kind of time frame is realistic? You know, I mean, you're, you know, I, I guess we always hear about property flippers, but really for the people like myself, what's what's a realistic time frame? Yeah, real estate's never. I mean, you can make money flipping in, in real estate, of course, but. My ideal time frame in, in something like this would be a good two to five year hold, or of course forever as uh, as real estate values continue to uh, to rise. And it people always regret the ones that they sell, not the ones that they buy, right? Yeah. And what about? Uh, I mean, it's obviously your business when you're in the green mortgage team. What uh, What about? Uh, is it easy to get a mortgage? Like it's going to be my second, not my main house. I'm, you know, let's say I I do want to make sort of an investment in Whistler or Kelowna or something like that. Is it just as easy to get a mortgage? Not uh, nearly as easy as it was when I started in the business in 2006. Uh, yeah. It definitely has become a lot more difficult. The banks are a lot tighter on this, but uh, with some careful planning and, and understanding what banks are looking for, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of things that we teach our clients on, on how to, uh, to ensure that they can qualify for rental purchases each and every time. So it's doable, but it is a lot harder than it used to be. Real, real quick, a rule of thumb, if again, I'm talking about a property that you're going to own and, and maybe rent out, what size down payment should I be anticipating? Usually 20 to 25% down is, is a typical amount that you can get away with. Yeah, and then they'll be happier and your probability of getting it will be much higher. A mortgage, yeah. I meant. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, one, one point I'll make is that you can buy a second home, so something you're going to use for personal use mm-hmm. with as little as 5% down with CMHC. So it is possible to do as little as 5% down, but if it's an investment property, the minimum is 20%. Good stuff. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate you finding time on the weekend. No problem. Thanks a lot. Kyle Green is with the Green Mortgage Team. You can get that right away at www.greenmortgageteam.ca. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Paul Beatty is with me, co-founder, president, BT Global. I love his stuff, but also I've got my quote of the week. You want to stay with me for that one. Stay here right across the Money Talks Network.